0: Let's turn in our Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2. Been enjoying this study in Philippians as Paul relates to the church in Philippi, the secrets really of the joy-filled life. He lays it all out, and as we've been through the first chapter, we see that incredible prayer that he prayed for them, and that I encouraged you to pray for our church over the last few weeks, and I hope, I know many of you have done that, and, and uh, if, if not, encourage you, anytime you think of praying for the church, the, that prayer there in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1 would be a good one. But he takes us through and talks about, as we saw last week, about what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. What are we worth to God? And as a result, how should that affect our life? But here, as we come to chapter 2, Paul focuses in on really what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And he talks about a life with a fullness of joy. Beginning with verse 1, it says, therefore, on the basis of Let each of you look out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others. Paul is talking about a life that results in joy that's fulfilled. That word for fulfill there is a Greek word plerao that means the total package. Everything that there is to joy. Here's the way life is designed to be lived and he's telling them that they can participate in him experiencing that same joy that He also wants them to have. Jesus said much the same thing over in John chapter 15. As he talked to the Christians, to his disciples, about that love that he wants them to have, and he says, I want you to do it so that your joy will be full. You'll really experience what life is supposed to be and to the degree in which it's to be experienced. And here Paul is kind of laying out for us, here's what, the Christian life is supposed to be like. And here's what joy really means and how we find it. Now, next week, as we come into verse 5, we see him lay out Jesus Christ as the example of how this works. But this morning, in these first four verses, we want to focus on what that life could look like. The, the vision that God has for how our life ought to be. And Paul, as he expresses it, could life really be like this? Could it really be like you dreamed it would be? Can it really be, is it is it possible for life to be lived this way? And so in the first couple of verses, he kind of paints the picture of that life that comes from a fullness of joy, and then in verse 3, he talks about how it looks in terms of practice and, and the things that we can do to make it happen and, and also in verse 4. And so, a life, a life of joy, a life that's fulfilled and it's flowing and it's exciting and it works. And Paul is saying to them, is that possible? So he begins in verse 1 again by if, if. We know from Greek grammar this is called a first-class condition, which means the implication is, if this is possible, and it is. He's not saying, who knows, maybe it is. He's expressing it in such a way that as the listeners, we would listen and go, hmm, could this happen? But Paul is also saying, absolutely this can happen. And so, first, if there is any consolation in Christ. That word there for consolation, we use, I, I think it's a poor choice of words here probably, we use the word consolation or console as if somebody's feeling really bad, you go, oh well, it's not that bad, and sort of consoling them. The word doesn't necessarily have that connotation. The word in the Greek is the same word that we get the English word paraclete from, It's a a word that means to be called alongside. Para means alongside, and kaleo is to call. And so parakaleo is a word that means to be called alongside. Often in the New Testament, it's translated as exhort. But exhort doesn't quite paint the picture either. If you look at the root of the word, you get the idea of what it really is saying. And it's talking about someone who is called to be alongside you, to support you from your side to say, I understand that I am called to put my arm around you and pull you in and take you under my wing and to be there for you. It's a word that's used as one of the names of the Holy Spirit. When, in the New Testament, when it calls the Holy Spirit the comforter, it's this same word, parakaleo. It's It's one who is called alongside and pulls you in. It's the opposite of being alone. It's the opposite of feeling isolated and disconnected, and you know that feeling when you think no one really understands what I'm going through, no one really cares about what I'm going through, no one is connected to me on the side. Oh, there are some people out ahead of me, they feel like they're on some different plane and they're going, hey, come on this way, follow me. There are other people yapping at my heels, telling me to keep going, but that connection that comes is something so often that we live our lives without and yet that's only because of of our deception because we not only have a holy spirit who is called alongside us who wants to mentor us and to and to lead us from the side not from in front or in back but not only that there are people who care about us and who play that role as well, if we have our eyes open for it. And there are also opportunities that God gives us to be a paraclete for someone else. It's a great idea, but in reality, often not the experience of our lives, certainly not the ready, common experience that if I say to you, who is your paraclete? Who is the one who is always by your side and, and you know, with you? For many people, sadly, they go, you know what? I have people who probably think they're that way. There are people that I know, if, if this was a test, they would probably be the right answer for me, but in reality, I don't know, I haven't had enough of that. But it's something that we all desire, to have someone who truly stands beside us and goes through what we are going through. And so Paul says, if there's any of that in Christ, any parakaleo, any comfort, any strength from the side. Now, the reason why normally this would be translated comfort, it's probably the you know closest English word to it other than one who is called alongside. But the reason it wasn't is because the next word also means comfort. And where the first word is from parakaleo, along, called alongside, the next word that's translated in our version here, comfort, is a word that's para, the first part of it is the same, alongside. But muthion is a word that means word, a word or saying something. And this comfort of love, this words alongside of love, is the idea of hearing that voice, hearing those words of love that are said to you, again, from the side from someone who comes alongside you but they're saying things that you really need to hear. They're expressing those voices that spur us on. The word is also translated in other places in extra-biblical Greek, incentive. It's But th- where it comes from is that there are certain things that can be whispered in our ear that give us the incentive to continue to move on, to continue to go forward, to believe that I can actually do this. And so between someone who comes and holds you on the side and someone who speaks those words in your ear that would give you the incentive to keep moving, those words of love that are necessary, he's saying, hey, does that sound good? Can that really happen? Is that the way the body of Christ can function? Is that the way our families can really function? Is the words that we hear whispered are not, stop doing that. But it's, you can do it. I care about you. I love you. You know, whether we, whether we like it or not, we all, as we go through life, we hear little voices that are whispering to us. Some of them echoes of things that were told to us when we were young. Messages of failure. Messages of not measuring up. Messages of criticism. And those voices, sad to say, we take with us. And for many of us, we almost don't do anything in life without hearing those bitter whispers of criticism. But at the same time, hopefully, there are people who have spoken to us words of confidence and love, words of hope and optimism, and how we need to listen to that voice, how we need to to put our trust and our confidence in that little voice that's telling us, you can do this. You're not beyond hope. You haven't failed to the point of breakdown. Because we have those voices, on the one hand, those negative voices can destroy us. You can, I know people whose lives are miserable because of words that they heard 70 years ago. And that voice is still like on your shoulder, and you're knowing what they're saying, and you're hearing it. And how important it is that we hear that voice from the other side of love and comfort and strength. And he's saying, how about it? Is that possible? Can life really be that way? And then he says, thirdly, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship is a word that tends to nowadays mean getting together with people and eating food. You know, the three F's of the church, food, fun, and fellowship. The word fellowship in the Greek, most of you are familiar with it, it's the word koinonia, or we say to have things in common, to realize a connection. It's an interesting word, koinonia, because they used it to refer to people who came from the same village. But literally what it means is drinking from the same well. See, in those days, each village would have a well, a water source. They would build a village or a town around a water source. But because the water source was so much the center of their life, everyone would go there regularly, and they would sit and fellowship around the well and and gossip and everything else, but that was their big meeting place. And there was also this mystical connection that they sensed because, You and I live because we are drinking from the same spring. We are drinking from the same source. So this became a really important word for the Christians because Jesus Christ, the one who said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, hey, I can give you water that you won't have to keep drawing from the well because it'll spring up from within you like a well of water. See, as Christians, what we are saying is, here we are, we are together, and we're all drinking from the same well. That same source of life that spurs you on, spurs me on, that, that quality of God that refreshes me refreshes you too. And as a result, we realize we would all be dead without the well of life, without the water of life. And that should cause us to say, we share together in something that's amazing. And as a result, hey, the Spirit of God working in our lives, helping us to be interdependent, that understanding that we all have the same needs and our needs are met in the same way by the same God. And Paul's going, could life even be like that? Is this even real? And finally, if any, affection and mercy. That word for affection means bowels or guts. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. And he's saying, you know what? Because of what God has done for us, can we live our lives in such a way that in the depths of our being, mercy is our nature? That we're wanting to extend mercy to others, to not resent people and to get bitter towards them when they don't do things our way. Wouldn't it be nice to know that you'll receive mercy whatever you do, wherever you go? And so he's saying, and not a fake mercy. It's easy to fake mercy. You know, you force that smile and you just act like, okay, everything's fine when it's not. But legitimate mercy to come from your very guts. He's going, here's what life is supposed to look like. Now, I ask you, doesn't that sound pretty good? A life that, as, as he outlines it here, that there's always someone beside you to take you under their wing, that there's always someone whispering those messages of love in your ear, that there's always a sense of belonging together, of having that koinonia, we're all drinking from the same well. And, you know, always mercy from the gut, from deep inside of who you are. And so Paul, again, he's posing this as a question, really, and saying, Is that possible? Could that be the case? And now he goes on and describes the life even more. But he says, if this happens, fulfill my joy. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. In John chapter 17, as Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, he prayed for his disciples and said, God, make them one. And then he prayed for disciples that would come about later as a result of the witness of the apostles, and that's us. And he prayed for you and for me down looking through the centuries. And he said, Father, please make them one so that the world will know that you've sent me. Jesus, the desire of his heart was to see his people unified. And he said, that's what it all comes down to. That's what I want you to do, Father. Because we won't affect the world until they see a unity. Well, that's what Paul is referring to here. But it's interesting because he says uh, being like-minded and then of one mind is the last thing that he says in the verse. And you know, Well, what does that mean? These two words are pretty similar. To be like-minded means literally to think the same thoughts, but then to be of one mind means to think one thought. Now, I'll put the two together and explain it the best I can what the difference is. That being like-minded, the idea there is that we all come to the table with different ideas, different thoughts, different opinions, but we come together and we say, we want to be able to share with each other. We're putting all of our thoughts on the table and we're going to have a good look at them and we're going to benefit each of us from what the other has to offer. It's, a, it's, it, it's basically what it means is to think together. Now, how often do we even do that? Usually what we do is we think on our own. We formulate our own opinions and we get some input from other people, but we have a tendency more to go, I came up with my ideas based on my thoughts. And if I get together to talk to you and we have a difference, I pretty much have my stuff together and you have your stuff together, and let's see who wins. Let's see who can convince the other person. But how many times do we take our thoughts and go, Look, here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? and put them together in a way that's constructive and helpful and beneficial to both of us, well, that's what he's asking. Because, see, the kind of unity that, that brings about this joy that he's talking about, it depends on us finding common ground. If we can't find common ground, we'll never be unified because we're all so different. We've been reading on Wednesday nights in the Proverbs and there are so many Proverbs and one of them we saw this week in Proverbs, this last week in Proverbs 16 talked about everybody thinks they're right, basically. And that's the problem. I think I'm right, you think you're right. But this that Paul is talking about here is let's all put our ideas together and let's see where we go. Now, as it comes to that fourth term, all thinking one thought or being of one mind, the idea is after we process together, we all come down to what we can agree on. We all, through our filtering of ideas and thoughts, we go, you know what, here's what matters. Here's what's important. Here's what matters most to us, And, and we can find a commonality in our discussions that lead to a unity that brings about joy. This is something that, you know, you might have thought it was a good idea. Even for those of you who are married, before you were married, you were pretty much able to do it. But usually it was because one of you or the other of you just rolled over and gave in as soon as there was a difference. And you go, man, it's great. We get along so well because I just give my opinion and she agrees with me. Boy, this is wonderful. It's hard to keep that up over a long time because it doesn't lead to joy. And so the only way we're going to get an agreement that leads to joy is to value what each other has to say and to work those things together in a constructive way that leads to a unity. And when that doesn't happen, joy is hard to come by. But Paul is saying it could be this way. It's possible that you can value each other's differences because you realize we're in this together. We have a fellowship. If if we can't work this out between us, it's going to divide us. And he would say, that's kind of what this life is supposed to look like. And then again, as he says, uh, having the same love. Ultimately, it's that love, that glue of love that holds us together. Do you love someone enough to show them mercy? Do you love someone enough to value their opinions and to risk yours by putting it all out there on the table? Do you love someone enough that you will encourage them and lift them up and help them? Paul's going, What do you think? Wouldn't that be nice? And we all go, boy, would that be nice. Boy, is that foreign, but boy, would that be nice. And he says, not only that, being of one accord and of one mind. That word for being of one accord is a it's a compound word that, you know the word suke or psyche? It means like who you are at your essence, or it's usually translated soul. Well, this word of one accord is soon psyche. The word soon, S-U-N, means with or together, and the word psyche is who you are, your essence, your soul. What he's saying is that we are to be together, connected at the soul. We, a good translation of it would be soulmates. You know there are certain people that it just seems like when you contact them that you're soulmates. You just connect on such a deep level. Given a little time, it goes away. But, you know, at first, it's like, you know, it's like, wow. But what happens sometimes, we lose that which is our privilege as people to be connected in that way. And Paul is again asking the question, I wonder if that could be. To to really be soulmate with others, to be connected that intimately, that deeply, and again, Ultimately, it's like we think alike because we boiled it down to what matters most. Now, what a great dream that would be if life could be that way. If your life, if my life could reflect these kinds of values, who would say, no, I don't want that. I don't want that kind of love. I don't want to hear those loving messages in my ear and have somebody always protecting me and pulling me alongside them. And I, No, that sounds you know, too crazy. I'm, gonna, I'm better off on my own. Not many people are that foolish. Most of us look at this, and again we listen as he is going, if there is any paracleting going on, if there is any words alongside of love, if there is any true koinonia, sharing, drinking from the same well, if there's any, you know, deep from the gut mercy, if there's a way that we can put our words together and come away agreeing on things that matter most, if that becomes our life, man, how it'd be easy to have joy if that were the case. But now Paul gets to the reasons why that doesn't happen. It's true. It's not, he's just not throwing out some wild dream. He's saying this is the way life ought to be. This is something that is totally possible, and in that possibility is the opportunity for us to experience joy to the fullest. And if we're not experiencing joy to the fullest, it's because this isn't happening in our lives the way God wants us to. But now, over these next couple verses, he talks about the predominant reason as to what gets in the way of this as to why this isn't happening for us. If the litmus test is joy, and you haven't been feeling it lately, here are some ideas as to what God wants to do in your life so that these characteristics that we've only dreamed about actually become the way we live our lives. And in verse 3, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That word there for selfish ambition is a word that really Mean it refers to choosing sides. We have this capacity within us to know that there are winners and losers, and I want to be a winner. And so I need to partner with some people who can help me win rather than being stuck in a situation where I'm going to lose. This, as he calls it, selfish ambition. It's the desire to step on anyone else because the most important thing is for me to get ahead. And so Paul says, you can't do that and experience this kind of joy. You can't do that and have this kind of lifestyle. It just won't work. That word there for conceit that he uses next is a word that literally in the Greek is the word that means glory or doxa, which is a word of value and designation of value, praise, you know, as another word for it. We have the song, the old hymn, the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's called that because doxa is glory and, wo- and logos is word. And so doxology, it's the words of glory as we're praising God. But this is a word that has dox in it or glory, but it also has the prefix kenos, which is a word that means empty or vain. And so the literal, almost transliteration of it is vain glory, It's the idea that you have decided that the most important thing is for you to be on a pedestal, for you to get the attention, for you to be put first and up front, and yet to seek personal glory in that way will always, always be empty. It never works. And so he says, if you want to have this kind of lifestyle, forget about putting you first. That'll be vain and empty. It doesn't work. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. It doesn't mean that by comparison you go, I'm the worst person in the world. There are some people who think that, I'm the worst person in the world. But you say that so other people will say, oh, no, you're not. You're really good. You're really a neat person. And then you feel better. It's a gimmicky sort of thing. The truth is we all have a pretty high regard for our own feelings, for who we are. I don't think for most people it's a big problem that they just think nothing of themselves. The problem is we think so much of ourselves even when we're bummed out. Our life centers around us. We allow other people to suffer because we're not feeling good. Pastor Chuck often says how people say, oh, I feel so I hate myself. I'm so ugly. And he says, you don't hate yourself. If you hated yourself, you'd be glad you're ugly. (laughs) See, in our, in our selfishness, we actually, that's just another way of being at the center of life. But Paul's saying, if you're going to discover this life that most of you have only dreamed of, this life that has a fullness to it, a fullness of joy, then you've got to get past this hurdle of thinking that it's all about you and instead begin to esteem others, put other people's good ahead of yours. The truth is, in almost every case, I give myself every benefit of the doubt. If I do something wrong, I'm quick to point out that I meant well. If I do something that offends you, I'm very quick, at least in my own mind, even as I'm apologizing to you and saying, oh, I'm sorry I offended you, in my own mind, I'm going, if you weren't such a weirdo, if you weren't so legalistic, if you hadn't been raised such a nut job then you wouldn't be offended by me because there can't possibly be anything that's legitimately offensive about me. I'm great. Oh, Jeff, shut up. <laughs> and Jeff Pfeiffer is a perfect example. The guy thinks he's perfect. <laughs> He'll let you know. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, that's our natural perspective. We're self-centered. And so Paul says, look, Give other people the same benefit of the doubt that you give yourself. It's another way of expressing the golden rule, really. How about giving a little credit to other people and believing that they might mean well, that maybe you're the one who's being overly sensitive. And so he says, again, let each esteem others better than himself. It's also not just the idea of how you think about others. It's more the way you treat others. It's an exhortation to say, lift other people up Encourage them, and in in a sense, if you want to live the dream of verses 1 and 2, how about fulfilling the dream of verses 1 and 2 in someone else's life? being those words that are whispering love to someone, being that one who pulls someone close and and brings them alongside of them, being that one who offers that fellowship and that mercy and grace, being that one who is willing to work on our words and find out what we have in common and come to an agreement. And so he says, if you're gonna do that, then give that, esteem others, lift other people up, And then he says, having the same, or uh, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, realize you will never be satisfied if your energy is spent trying to satisfy yourself, it'll never work. But in an amazing, weird, mystical way, when you will attempt to fulfill this dream in other people's lives, becomes fulfilled in yours, and that image of what the Christian life could be and that joy that results will come forth naturally if you can bring yourself to give what it is that we all need desperately, this encouragement, this help, this comfort, this strength, this esteem. You know, I can't make myself feel really good. I can try, you know, but self-help, it doesn't work go to the bookstore and you'll see a whole massive self-help section. And all these ways in which you can do it for yourself. If it worked, there wouldn't be so many books on (laughs) self-help. You know, the business would dry up because the first book would help you and you'd be okay. But we jump from self-help to self-help to self-help without discovering the truth and that is, I can't fix myself, I can't really encourage myself that much, not in the same way that someone else can. See, I can look in the mirror in the morning and go, Dave, you're looking pretty good. But if I say that, I'm kidding. Because I honestly don't ever look and go, wow, looking pretty good, Dave. <laughs> I, after, I, after I teach a message, once in a while I'll feel like, that was pretty good. But for the most part, I'm critical. I'm thinking, oh, I forgot to say what I wanted to say here. And man, second service, I didn't put that in order the way it was. Or, ooh, I shouldn't have made that joke. And, you know, when my mother-in-law was here or whatever. And and it's like, (laughs) you know, I'm going, ah. But see, it's an amazing thing that when other people talk to me, they can actually make me feel better. Much more than my own self-talk. Self-talk is pretty you know, frustrating ultimately, as is self-ministry. Oh, everyone's always saying, you just need to take care of yourself. I can't take care of myself very well. It's just not that encouraging or that satisfying. And so often, even when we don't do that, what we do is we form little groups of kind of a, you know, we make a small circle of friends that's kind of a mutual admiration society where we tell each other how great we are. You know, you have certain friends that if you ask them how you look today, they're always going to say, oh, so cute. You know, and you are like, oh, great, thanks. But come on, deep down inside, you know, if they thought you looked goofy, they wouldn't tell you. You know, there are certain people you just flat out don't ask how you're doing or how you're looking or how you did that day. And that's the... That's the purpose of the body of Christ is that it is only through mutually ministering to each other. It's only through discovering the beauty of being a part of a team, a part of a body that really life can work the way it's supposed to work. There are a lot of people who have become so frustrated with people letting them down that they shut themselves off and just go, that's it. The best I'm ever going to do is looking at myself in the mirror and telling myself how good I'm looking best I'm ever going to do is self-help of pumping myself back up and stepping on other people, taking advantage of them and getting whatever it is I need in order to get through the next day. And that's the lie of Satan, and the reason that it's there is because Satan wants to rip you off from that joy that the Bible says, according to Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, if you can't get this joy thing going in your life, you have no strength. You're going to live a gutless life. No one's going to be influenced by you. No one's going to be around you. No one will be impacted by you. You've got to plug into that joy somehow. So Satan goes, if I can cut you off from the herd and isolate you, then I've got you. And he has done that too many times for too many of us, for too long, cutting us off. And we just get used to no joy. We think this is the normal life without those connections that are just vitally important, those connections that we were created to have. I know some of you have gone through times of isolation where it just felt like nobody understands, nobody cares, there's no hope, life's never going to get any better than this. But then something happens, Some you get involved in some ministry or God brings a person into your life and first you don't trust them because you're like, no way, I've been burned before. But all of a sudden you start to discover there's something going on here, and I don't know what's happening, but I have a joy. I'm starting to, even though the circumstances aren't that great, I've connected with the body. I've connected with other people in such a way that hey, this is feeling pretty nice. I, I, I don't even know this feeling. This is a surprise to me. Understand this. If that's not the way we are living in community, then we will never live in joy. Because I can only do for you what you can't do for yourself and, and you can do for me what I can't do for myself and yet we all need it. You ever buy a Christmas present for yourself? It's really not that satisfying. It's okay but it's hard to act like you're surprised when you open it. <laughs> but what we've done with with presents so often nowadays in our culture, we it, it's such a hassle to buy presents for people and you have that feeling of you know, okay, they bought me a present, now I have to buy them a present. And and then you start revolving presents. Somebody gives you it, and you give it to somebody else. and It just gets really complicated. And now, I mean, for most, you know, so often for, for most families, it's like, okay, this Christmas, first of all, we're only going to buy for the kids. Because us adults, we can buy whatever we want anyway. And then we come up with this bizarre thing where, okay, let's get all the relatives, names in a hat, and we'll draw names, and everyone only has to buy one present. And then invariably, it's like, and it can only cost $20. And then you go, I've been at family gatherings where they start to argue. I'm, it wasn't my family. It was, well, actually, those are the only family gatherings I've been at, so I guess they are. But, you know, it's like somebody's pulling out the receipts. Look, I got it on sale. it was on, And it's like, what, is this what gift giving is all about? But that's what happens as we, as we lose the ability to share, as that heart for koinonia is gone, then relationships just become obligation. They just become, I'm doing this because I have to do it. And there's nothing in the heart that's there. But buying, and, and I think eventually the whole thing will develop to where we just say, how about everyone just buy something for themselves this year? And we'll all put them under the tree and we'll take them back out. But why is it that, for instance, if you will take the time to get a few shoeboxes and put some toys in it for little kids down in Mexico? I mean, if you tried giving that stuff to your kids, they would go, what is this? A toothbrush? Gee, thanks a lot. But you go down there to Mexico and you see these kids are like, it's the only gift they got this year. And they're opening it up and they're like, wow. And you could go spend, you know, five or ten bucks filling a shoebox, and it will be the greatest thing that happens to some of those kids down there. And you'll see the joy on their faces. And why? Because we have the ability to make a difference for others. And that's what life is supposed to be for us, gifting others with what we have. What you have can be so cheap, and yet it can mean so much to someone else. Now you go, I can't afford to buy gifts that'll you know, really make people happy. I disagree. Because often, just something that you say, when you go out of your way, you don't have to say it. But just to go up and share something with someone for a moment can make such a huge difference in their life. Don't you remember times when someone said something to you and it just choked you up? It just meant so much that they shared that? I mean, can can you connect to that idea at all? And then can you realize... We have the chance every day to do that for others. And the amazing irony of the whole thing is that ultimately the most selfish thing that you can do for yourself is to live your life giving to others and reaching out to them. And I know that sounds contradictory, you know, that either you better look out for yourself or nobody's going to look out for you. But the way God has designed the body of Christ is to function in such a way that I can do something for you, and you can do something for me. And together we go, man, does that feel good. Boy, that just, it made me happier to do something for someone than, than it could ever make me f- to do something for myself. And as we mutually do it, and we work together, and we realize we're a part of a team, oh, it comes together in a way that's just glorious. It's the biggest thing, honestly, that I've enjoyed about getting this new church building. It's, it's just a building, You know, we'll celebrate this week on Tuesday night and dedicate it to the Lord because it is the Lord's, and that's an exciting thing, but the service on Tuesday night would have to go a long way before it was as big a deal to me as some of the work days building up to it. As we're just together doing stuff, fixing things, I'm watching people in the church out there planting grass and cleaning down cobwebs and and then somebody the lord laid it on their heart to fix lunch and made a barbecue out here and they got hamburgers not like those costco burgers that taste like sponges but like real beef and it was and it was like man sitting around as a body this is so cool it's one of the best days i've had in a long time a work day crazy it feels better than when i just go loaf somewhere but see that's the way we are designed We are designed that when we give, when we share, when we come alongside others, it's an amazing thing. The body starts to work and others come alongside us. They may be inspired by what we do, and then they do it. Maybe not for us, but for someone else. Eventually, they'll get around to you if you quit being such a sourpuss. And you'll begin to experience that joy. And, you know, it's a funny thing. When you're experiencing joy because you've been giving, all of a sudden, other people like hanging out with you, and they'll be participating and contributing to your joy as well. The church was never designed to be a place for really miserable people to stay miserable. The church was designed as a celebration for what God has done for us. And if we will give, and if we will just, you know, the idea here of, uh, you know, not uh, you know, where it says, in lowliness of mind, it's the idea to chill out on yourself. Just don't take yourself so seriously. Everything that hurts me so deeply is what somebody does to offend me. He's going, just chill out on you a little bit. Decide that it's not all about you. And when we do that, amazing things happen. And joy starts to flow. And when you're around joy, it gives you more joy. When you serve and you experience others serving you, you just go, wow, this is so, this is the way it's supposed to work? And Paul would say, absolutely. And he's saying to these Christians, look, I am living in prison. And I am certainly living with pain and discomfort and misery part of the time. But he goes, I'm loving this. Why? because I've discovered what it is to be a part of something that's greater than me. I've discovered what it is to participate with others in mutual, beneficial ministry. And I've quit thinking it's about me, and I've decided that it's about others and what I can do for them. And I'll never run out of things that I can do for other people. And when I figure out that that's what gives me joy and I set that example, other people are eventually going to figure it out and they'll get around to coming alongside me. And that's when it really starts to work and that's when it gets exciting. That's when it gets glorious. And that's when we experience the joy of the Lord as our strength. That's what God wants for us. I pray that God will help us to learn this in a way that's life-changing for each of us. The extent to which we're not experiencing joy, I pray that God will remind us, hey, the key is get out of the way. It's not about you. What can you do for others? And in doing that, that irony that, man, this is the most selfish thing that I could do is to minister to others because it really feels great for me too. I'll let you in on a secret. I don't tell people this very often, but so often people think, oh, Pastor Dave, you work so hard and it must just be awful. And, you know, I play along. It's, there's nothing awful about it. You know, oh, you have to listen to people's problems. I hate to bother. It's not a bother at all. Understand this. The the secret to life and to joy is realizing, wow, I get to be there for other people. Now, People are there for me, too. But, you know, it gets to the point where it's not even that important anymore. If I still have breath, if I still have strength, I I still just want to be there for other people because I realize it's the most self-serving thing that I can do is to serve others. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. It's It's in a great way. That's how it's supposed to work. So if you're thinking, wow, there was a time when I had a dream of a life that was just joy-filled, and I just thought if I found the right person, they would be everything that I would need. They would pull me alongside them. They would be whispering sweet somethings in my ear. They would be loving me. We'd have this commonality. We would agree on everything. No, not that, but ultimately there would be a unity, and for many of us, we've just given up on that dream. We've just decided sounds good, but it doesn't work that way, And so we curl up into a shell and we begin to live our lives selfishly with vainglory. And as a result, we forfeit real joy, real love, real peace, that fruit of the Spirit that He wants to do. I want to encourage you, don't give up on that dream. It's God's dream for you as well. And the pathway to that, in fact, the only way it won't happen is if you let yourself get in the way of it happening. Get yourself out of the way and let God do what he does best. And he'll bless you, and you'll see as you bless others, you'll start to enjoy life like never before. And joy will be a complete surprise to you. C.S. Lewis wrote his kind of autobiography called Surprised by Joy. And it was a play on words because C.S. Lewis, who lived his life most of his life as a bachelor, he found the Lord, he said, he felt like God dragged him kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, and he was shocked because he had been this, you know, crotchety old dude, and all of a sudden he was sensing joy, and then he met a woman named Joy Davidman, who was a, an American writer who began to correspond with him, and, and they fell in love and were married, and then he spent the rest of their life together as he watched her die, and her name was Joy, and C.S. Lewis shares how that experience was totally transforming for him. A guy who had lived as a selfish bachelor and now he's finding himself living as a, as a nursemaid to someone who wouldn't live very much longer and yet she surprised him. And God did too. In learning how to live with someone else, how to share with someone else, how to pour yourself out for someone else. And it's a beautiful testimony of what God wants to do for each of us. To surprise us with joy. To allow us to discover, you mean giving is the way to receive? Absolutely. And that dream can come true for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, it sounds good. It's a life that we all love, and yet for most of us, we try to get it by promoting ourselves by elevating ourselves, by doing everything for ourselves. God, I pray that you will help us to have the faith to give what we feel like we can't afford to lose so that ultimately we will receive what we really want and what we really need, and that is a life of sharing and dependence. And accompanying that, Lord, a joy of fellowship. Of commonality so Lord may this become more of a reality in our lives and we'll check ourselves on it once in a while by asking ourselves how much joy are you bringing into the lives of others this week help us to do this with your strength and by your spirit God we're sorry when you have laid out the, the blueprint for happiness and we walk away from it we refuse it God, please help us to start to live like we're supposed to, to enjoy life as you call us to. We thank you for paying the price and, as we'll see next week, for going first and showing us how this works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.